Chapter 23 of Cordelia the Magnificent This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cordelia the Magnificent by Leroy Scott Chapter 23 Cordelia the Magnificent the following morning, the smart roadster, which had formerly been a faded and freckled maroon, but now had almost a bridal freshness in its new complexion of hunter's green, drew up again beside the Park Avenue apartment building, and Cordelia, who had excitedly whizzed all the way here from Jackie's, excitedly whizzed upward to unfold her news. A telegram had been received, and her mother and Lily were waiting her. When Cordelia told of her engagement, feminine excitement could blaze no higher. There were tears, embraces, ejaculations, sobs of a delight which mere words were too limited to express. I knew you'd make a match of this kind, Mrs. Marlowe exclaimed proudly, when she had subsided to a level where being articulate was possible. And to think of it, Jerry Plimpton, but he's not better than you deserve, my dear and you'll make him a wife that will be an honor to his family. Lily was relieved to get down from emotional heights. After a spasm of emotion, she always felt ashamed, as though she had been caught indecently dressed, and to restore the self-respect of worldly fifteen, she had to draw. Well, cordial thing, I've sure got to hand it to you for being one grand little money hound. Just think of it. You've copped off a husband who's almost as rich as a bootlegger. Mrs. Marlowe made no attempt to reprove Lily for this impiety. She had long since despaired of curbing her younger daughter's tendency to verbal gammonism. That cure she was going to leave to Miss Harcourt. Mrs. Marlowe's mind now turned to a joyously practical aspect of the engagement. After this engagement is announced, I believe all these shop people will no longer bother me with their bills, she said with severe dignity, as if rebuking the shopkeepers and their proper persons for their discourtesy in troubling her with their trifles. In fact, I'm sure they will be only too happy to extend us all the further credit we may wish. In view of the circumstances, we shall need a lot of new things. I mean, Lily and I... You, Cordelia, are, of course, a separate consideration. Lily, in a few days you and I shall start out among the shops to see what we can do, as soon as the announcement has had time to have its effect. Cordelia informed her mother of Jerry's wish that the announcement should issue from Mrs. Marlowe, and issue at once. This was extremely gratifying to Mrs. Marlowe. There was to be no wait before the tradespeople ate their humble pie and all her friends, all the world, would within another day know this new honor of the Marlowes. So with Lily acting as secretary, despite her general flightiness, Lily wrote a really capable hand. Mrs. Gregory Marlowe begs to announce, etc., was written off many times. Envelopes were written off many times. Envelopes were addressed to all the city newspapers and all the society journals, and those letters were promptly dropped in the mail chute in the corridor. The formal engraved announcements 
would go out in due time. Jerry came in for tea that afternoon and kissed and was kissed by his relatives-to-be. He bore himself ideally with graciousness, affection, good humor. To Mrs. Marlowe, he was everything she could dream of in her dizziest dreams, as desirable in a son-in-law, of highest birth, highest manners, highest money. As for Jerry, he was pleased with his family-to-be, proud of Cordelia, of course, and in a lesser degree proud of Mrs. Marlowe. For though he admitted that she was not a brilliant woman, she was nonetheless of one of the best families. But of Lily, he was not so proud, nor so fond. He foresaw that Lily might prove to be the one spot of irritation in this new life of his, which was so happily beginning. Particularly, was he not so proud nor fond of Lily when, after asking her what he should give her for an engagement present, she glibly answered, Six thousand of your own special brand of cigarettes, six dozen silk pajamas, and six cases of your best hooch. And after her asking him if it were true what people said, that he was really and truly and honest to godly almost as rich as a bootlegger, Jerry smiled at her request and inquiry. But his smile was from the face outward. For all his having mixed for some thirty years on familiar terms with all sorts of the best people, Jerry was dismayed and felt an exasperated inner shame at the shameless outspokenness of this new generation of girls in their mid-teens. He'd have to find means, later on, for curbing this cheeky lily. She, too, was going to be a beauty like her sister when she grew up. He might be proud of her then. But she would certainly take a lot of curbing. In the meantime, he fervently thanked God she was going to enter Harcourt Hall the following week. His little sister-in-law-to-be could not be in a better reformatory, for Miss Harcourt had the name of taming the wildest material into well-bred ladies. Over their tea, when they considered mundane details, Cordelia asked Jerry as a very great favor to her to consent to a modest wedding. This request was born of an earlier conference with her mother, in which Mrs. Marlowe, who would have loved nothing so much as a big show wedding, mentioned the predicament which arose from the fact of the bride's family being supposed to pay the costs of a wedding, and from the further fact that they had nothing at all with which to pay. Jerry delicately sensed something of the motive behind this request, and he heartily agreed that nothing would suit him so little as the usual big theatrical spectacle staged around the altar. So it was agreed that the wedding should be very modest. Already Cordelia had begun to consider privately if it might not be even simpler, and therefore much easier for her mother, if the two of them just slipped away and were married. The following morning, Cordelia found herself on the first page of every New York newspaper. And it is indeed a wondrous tribute to the extraordinary importance of an engagement or marriage when it can compete on equal terms with the ordinary divorce for first-page eminence. Her pictures were in the papers, too. And a little later, she was to receive these pictures by the thousands from all parts of the country. For the moment he learned the news, Kyle Brandon, instead of sending her florist flowers, as he explained, subscribed to a press-clipping bureau in her name. If she had not known before how great was her success, 
all this newspaper space would have made it plain enough. And Kyle Brandon made it even plainer. When telephoning her of the newspaper flowers he was sending her, he had, of course, begun by congratulating her most warmly. He lapsed for a few phrases into the levity of professional jargon. If I had as big a picture story as you two have a marriage story, I'd have the biggest picture the world ever saw filmed, he declared over the wire. You've got a hit, the biggest knockout of ten years. And so indeed it was. From the moment she drove back to the apartment in her shiny green roadster, Cordelia had determined that her career as a popular guest who made ends meet by being a guest was then and there forever at an end. She needed a convenient place of her own from which she could direct her coming activities. The apartment was the only place she had, and so she decided to remain in town, although the time was then only mid-September, and the days still had their summer heat for the next two months. In fact, up to the very day she drove away to be married, the apartment continued to be her headquarters, which was the longest single period she had spent in her home since she had started on her career of itinerant guest at 18. Since the announcement of the engagement, the telephone was always ringing. One of the liveried attendants of the building was always carrying up bundles of letters. Cordelia had always known she had a long list of friends and had been popular with them. Otherwise, she could not have lived these past four years. But she had never guessed she had so many friends as now hastened to tell her of their delight. The whole social register seemed to be taking its pen in hand or taking its telephone receiver off the hook. Among this multitude of congratulators were, of course, the more intimate friends such as Jackie Thorndike and Aileen Harkness. Mitchell wrote her a brief note, which she considered rather nice. And Mr. Franklin answered her letter to him with just the tone of gallant gentlemanliness she expected. And later, when he called, he wore just the look of brave, smile-hidden grief that she knew would be on his face. Even Gladys wrote effusively, and even called on Cordelia and kissed her. For Cordelia was about to become a social figure of such unassailable importance that one would be a fool not to be friends with her. Incidentally, it seemed to Cordelia that she had not in all her previous life been kissed by Gladys so frequently and fervently as during the weeks since she had discovered Gladys' secret. But this kiss pressed against Cordelia's cheek was not what was on Gladys's lips on that morning when she first read the announcement of the engagement, nor was the fine, brave look of nobly hidden heartbreak which Cordelia's imagination saw upon Franklin's face, the exact look which had overspread his face the morning he had received Cordelia's letter. As he read of her engagement, her tribute to him as a rejected suitor, her notice of the termination of their business relationship, which had been so agreeable and profitable to both of them, and of her gratification at having truly earned the sums he had paid her as he so frequently assured her, the feelings aroused in him were quite other than the noble resignation Cordelia had imagined. As he studied the letter and the changes it meant to him some forty miles away, Gladys, in bed, was yawning over the headlines of her newspaper. The next moment, she was gasping, 
than swearing violently. Swearing was one of the very private courses with complete instruction, which Miss Harcourt did not know her excellent school provided. In the following moments, Gladys was flying across the room in her nightgown toward her telephone. She got Mr. Franklin at once. Have you seen the news? She cried. Cordelia Marlowe and Jerry Plimpton engaged. I've seen it, yes. But you said you were going to stop any engagement. Being engaged is not the same as being married, he reminded her. They are not married yet. But they will be. My paper says they're to be married soon. They're not married yet, he repeated. A lot may happen before then. But what can we do to stop them, as you said we'd do? Perhaps we'd better go over that in a little talk. Will you be in the city today? She would be. They had their little talk. And the result of it, so far as Gladys could see, was that Mr. Franklin's only plan was his statement that a lot might happen before the marriage. As a matter of fact, this really was Mr. Franklin's chief hope. It was after this that Gladys, somewhat discouraged by Mr. Franklin and her idea of upsetting Cordelia, called upon Cordelia and stamped her with a kiss of loyal affection. And it was after this that Mr. Franklin called upon her, wearing his look of secret sorrow nobly born. These days of late September and October were days of intoxicating glory for Cordelia, what with the universal congratulations, with her private sense of her achievement, with her sense of the vast interest the public was taking in her, and with the nearness of the greater triumphs which should be hers after she was Mrs. Jerry Plimpton. Her natural graciousness of manner became more gracious. Her high spirits became more sparkling, more communicative of glad thrills to others. Her wings grew more exultantly strong for soaring. Invitations poured in upon her. They were gratifying, but they no longer represented a livelihood. And besides, she was too excitedly busy with Jerry to spare time for accepting invitations. She and Jerry were now devoting themselves to one practical matter they had decided upon on the afternoon of their engagement. This was going over their various homes and starting alterations, which would fit them to Cordelia's taste or fit them for immediate occupancy whenever needed. Accompanied by Mrs. Marlowe, they spent a few days at sea on Jerry's yacht, the Nordic, later to be Cordelia's floating home. Not a change was needed here. With an architect and a decorator added to the entourage, jotting down memoranda of the instructions given to them, the three visited the great cottage at Newport, disestablished for a decade. And after that, they spent a week at Jerry's Adirondack camp, whose rugged out-of-doorness was represented by a main cottage and 14 guest cottages, all steam-heated and with tiled baths. But most of their redecorative energies were given to the Fifth Avenue house, which was to be the residence first used. Here, Jerry smilingly allowed Cordelia complete sway, as he had at the other establishments. It pleased him to have the future Mrs. Plimpton be the mistress to the last detail of her several future homes. 
No material aspect of her coming marriage gave such day-after-day substantial gratification to Cordelia as these homes and the business of refitting them. These homes signified to her a magnificent reversal of her formal role. No longer was she to be merely a desirable guest. She was to become a most desired hostess. And as a hostess, she would entertain as she had never been entertained. Gossip, of course, took note of these activities and guessed the social program at which they pointed. Gossipy's tongue wagged excitedly with questions, conjectures, weak-voiced doubts, loud-voiced affirmations. In country homes, in mountain lodges, in the few drawing rooms that were beginning to open, and more discreetly in the society columns of the newspapers. Would Cordelia ever make the great social figure that Jerry's mother had been? Some declared yes. Some feared no. But all agreed that she would prove a marvelous hostess, and all admitted that she was the most brilliant young star in the social firmament. The general attitude toward Cordelia was reflected perhaps in an exaggerated degree, by one of the great world's lesser but respected figures on the day Cordelia drove Lily out to Harcourt Hall to begin the treatment which was to transmute Lily's dross into the pure gold of a lady. Miss Harcourt almost made genuflections in her delight at Cordelia's visit. She no longer ventured to first name or my dear, her former pupil, Miss Marlowe. I always foretold that you, of all my girls, were destined to shine as the brightest, she said in awed respect. And, Miss Marlowe, I was right. I hope you will honor us. We shall count it an honor by visiting your sister as often as you can. And you may count on this, Miss Marlowe. We shall do our best for Miss Lily, our very best. When Cordelia drove away from the school which had so largely shaped her life, she could not have felt that this school had paid her greater obeisance, even had Miss Harcourt creaked down on her pudgy kneecaps and reverently kissed her felt. In these happy premarital days, the delicate considerateness of Jerry did not pause with turning over his houses to Cordelia. There were his mother's jewels. He took her to the vault where they were stored and showed them to her. The famous jewels that had not been upon a woman's person for now almost a dozen years. These jewels were now all hers, he told her. Of course, she would not want to wear them until after the marriage, but they were hers. She drew a deep, quivering breath as she held those tumbling masses of gleaming color, of leaping light in her two hands. Hers, all hers. Nor did the delicate considerateness of Jerry pause even here. He knew the exact condition of the Marlowe fortune, or thought he did. He knew Cordelia would not have one penny of her own after her marriage. That was quite all right with him. He was under no necessity of having his wife bring money into the family. But it was an old Plimpton tradition that their wives have separate and independent incomes and when their wives did not bring the incomes, the incomes were settled upon them. It had perhaps now grown to be a matter of inherited pride with the male Plimptons that their wives should never need to ask for money. At any rate, with delicate frankness and excusing his action by the Plimpton custom, 
Jerry brought up the subject of a wifely income and pressed his point, with the result that there were visits to the offices of his attorneys, and finally papers were drawn up and executed, settling 100000 a year upon Cordelia, the transfer to go in effect on the day she became his wife. Jerry made it clear to her that all running expenses, all general bills, were to be paid for out of his own funds. This 100000 a year was for her own personal expenses, her modiste's bills and the like, her pin money, to be spent exactly as she pleased, with no accounting. As the necessity for dining out in order to get a dinner, of forever going visiting in order to keep a home had been banished, so now had that other terrible Marlowe specter, the eternal lack of money. She now had money, money all her own, and all the money any woman might by any possibility ever possibly need. All these days Cordelia lived in sparkling thrills, succeeded by yet more sparkling thrills. Her body, her nerves, her spirit were all coruscations of delight. At last she had everything, everything she had ever dreamed of, more of it, and all of it better. What difficulties she had secretly surmounted, how skillfully she had secretly managed. What a dazzling, dazzling roadshow now stretched wide and open and easy and far before her. Yes, of a truth had she proved her sober right to that old half-jesting title. More than ever was she Cordelia the Magnificent. End of chapter 23 Read by Paul Hampton